If you are new to Element, welcome. There are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on the communion tables around the room. They look like this. And on the inside, you're going to get some notes that reflect on what we talk about today. On the back side, you're going to get the verses that we go through. On the bottom of that, you get a place to write some notes. If you have a smart device, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. And once you download it, it just says Bible. You click on More and then Events in Uversion. We will come up by GPS in your smart device. And you will get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, all that goes with today's message. But I'd like to do one more thing, and this is kind of a selfish thing for me just a little bit before we start. Um, I have told you guys for the last couple months, and you've been asking me questions about my mom who has cancer. She has surgery this week. And after this service, if you would like to hang out, we're going to pray for her. She doesn't know I'm doing this right now. So, ha hi. <laughs> So if you would like to hang out, we're going to pray for her after service, before the surgery. All right? Oh, big. It's okay. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's word? We will get started. Uh, this is Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. And it says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Let's pray. Father, today, I ask that you would teach us to be a people who see what you have done and that we would find great joy in that. And then that would then speak to the rest of our lives, how we live, what we say, what we do, would all stem from our understanding first of what you have done for us and that we would live out lives that bring you glory because we understand what the gospel truly is. Amen. Have a seat. So we are doing a trek through the New Testament book of Galatians. This is week 20. Yes, we've hit the 20s. That means we're in our home stretch. We are almost done with that. And I'm doing my best not to continually repeat myself, but Paul does repeat himself a lot in the book. I think repetition is good for us because we often forget what the gospel is. So Paul keeps bringing us back to that. Now today what Paul is going to do is try to give us a little bit of seeing the end of our lives so we can work back from that to the beginning. And so maybe our present could be changed. So what I did is I called this message the motivation. The motivation. Why do we do what we do? A few years ago, we went through the, New or the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. And Solomon says this interesting thing. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 8, he says, Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. And kind of what Solomon says here, is that foolish people and wise people, many times they will start with the same goal. Paul today will talk about running a race. But fools give up because fools focus on the now. They don't focus on the finish line. In the now, things can be hard. Sometimes things don't work out the way that we want. And wise people know it doesn't matter where we start. It's going to matter where we ultimately end. Some people come to follow Jesus in their life. Everything falls into place. Everything goes great. That's not my experience, but some people experience that, and they say it's because of Jesus, and it could be. But what about when life doesn't go the way that you want it to go, when everything doesn't fall into place? Does that mean Jesus isn't working? Well, no, that's, that's just life. Look, for me personally, I don't care where you got married, how many photos you took, uh, if, you were, if I was invited, what you fed me, if I did the wedding, if I stayed or not. What counts is how do you treat each other now? 
and then 50 years in the future, are you still holding hands? Uh, open your Bibles to uh, Galatians chapter 5. It's on page 633 if you're using one of the Bibles at Element. Now, for me, again, it doesn't matter to me what your one-year-old birthday party was like, how big it was. When they're 80 years old, what was their legacy? There's this really funny line in 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 11. This foreign king is going to come in. He's threatening to destroy this area in Israel. God has promised to protect Israel in this moment. And so the king of Israel says to this foreign invader, one who puts on his armor should not boast like one who takes it off. I love that. It's a great line. It's, it's like boast after you survive the battle, not before. Sometimes my friends and I will watch MMA and there's these fights and these guys just trash talk each other. And I always think, man, you shouldn't do that because one of you is going to lose. <laughs> you don't want to talk like that. And so what really what you want to do is see where we are going to end. Work back from that. Every guy can be a great husband on the second date. Every mom could be a great mother in the second trimester. Wisdom knows to trust God faithfully in every single one of our circumstances because that is what brings longevity. So we want to look at the end and not just the now. This is what Paul says, Galatians 5, 5. He starts like this. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. See, that's what we're looking forward to, this hope of righteousness. He goes on. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision circumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And then he goes on. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Who hindered you from the goal of what God has been calling you to in your life? N.T. Wright says this, what ultimately counts in this life is what ultimately matters at the day of judgment. It's the kind of faith that so trusts in Jesus that it inevitably expresses itself in love for both God and others. Again, it's how we see the end. Where are we going that leads to how we live today, how we honor Jesus in the here and now. And when we have enough wisdom, we can see what God is doing, what he continues to do and where we will be. Much of our struggles in life, I think, could go easier if we use more wisdom. And we thought about where we are going to end because it isn't about legalism and works or anything like that. I will talk sometimes to married couples in my office and they focus so much on the now. This is what you did to me or last week you said this or did that and all of my rights and it's provoke and provoke and provoke and then it's like, boom. And it seems like so much work to me. Sometimes people get so stuck in the past, they will never move to new places. Did you know you don't always have to argue with your spouse the exact same way? You know, you don't have, always have to argue with your parents or your kids or your coworkers or your boss the exact same way. And I don't say that because I'm perfect. The last couple days, my wife and I kind of had this low level irritation with each other. I know none of you ever experienced things like that if you're married, right? Never. But, and so, we're, and so it's like, uh, and so this morning, this, we snap again, and I'm like, okay, this is not working. How do I, I'm going to say this different, and I try and say it different, and I'm like, that didn't work either. <laughs> just, it's like, but you don't always have to do it the same way. You can actually change. It can actually be different. I don't know if you've ever been to a church that is just steeped in the past and won't change. I'm not talking theology-wise. I'm talking like colors and robes and pews and hymnals. Some married couples I talk to, they're always like, I wish we could go back to our first date. I don't. We've had better. Not to be vulgar, but some married couples, I wish we could go back to our wedding night. Do you understand? It should get better. 
It should move forward. I look forward to the day, even with my wife and I irritate each other, I look forward to the day when we are both so old we can barely move and we still argue over who has to die first. That's, that's what I'm looking forward to. Because we argue about that. <laughs> Foolish people want to go back. Wise people want to go forward. And this may be a hard place in your life right now. But I will tell you, you go through this. You can be in a better place when you understand what Christ has done. You go from suffering to joy, from grief to laughter, from life to Jesus. We move forward because that's wisdom. So where Paul starts, right, is he starts looking towards the past, what the people in Galatia are focused upon. And he says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything because he has a specific context in mind because he keeps coming back to this. The false teachers keep pushing this thing of the past. It is so important. And Paul says, no, it's not. And they're like, come on, are you kidding? Circumcision counts for a whole lot. And Paul's point again is, well, sure, it has in the past. But now you're living in a future when the effect of circumcision on your standing before God doesn't make any difference on the day of judgment. What does? The gospel. The gospel speaks to our past and our present and our future. How's the gospel spoken wisdom today? Paul says, faith working through love. Paul sees how the Galatians are getting so knocked off course by focusing on the wrong things. The motivation's all backwards. They don't look at what God has done for them. And I think this is why Paul constantly brings them back and repeats himself and pushes towards what the gospel is, our goal in Christ. The false teachers would tell the Galatians that faith in Christ isn't enough. You have to live good works. You have to do these things. You have to be circumcised or you can have no confidence that God has rescued and blessed you and saved you. Paul says, once you believe in Christ, no matter where you were before or what you did before, your sins can never bring you into condemnation because you become children of God. Paul's words in Galatians are children of Abraham. And this is really a big issue today because sometimes people ask me, how in the world, if we are saved by grace, is there any incentive to really live and love God in our lives? Kind of like you don't want a car made on a Friday because people are checked out for the weekend, so you may not get the best workmanship. Well, how if people know where we're going to end and that God brings it, why would we ever want to live for him? And Paul explains how it's the gospel of salvation through free grace, not works, that is the greatest incentive for how we live lives of love and holiness. Some people, they hear about grace and they think their whole life is now the weekend. They can live however they want because Jesus has taken care of it all. But, but that means they don't understand grace. They don't understand the gospel. They don't understand what God has done because obviously loving Jesus does not leave us to a place where we give up obeying God. Some people call it easy grace or cheap grace. No, no. It's see, our motivation is about what Christ has done and that leads us to a place to live in joy and hope and happiness. You ever hear actors do this? What's my motivation for this scene? And they're like, okay, well, you're on a desert island and your best friend is a volleyball. Got it. Wilson! What's my motivation? What changes our hearts so we want to live in love and sacrifice? That's the question social researchers have actually struggled with for years. How do you get people to follow through? 
There's a lady named Beatrice Webb. She and her husband essentially founded the social welfare system in Britain in the 1800s. They were both raised in the church. They leave it for humanism. And in 1925, towards the end of her life, Beatrice Webb starts to write how disillusioned she is with humanism, with people after all those years. She thought people have got to be the answers. The end of her life, she writes this, I have staked everything on the essential goodness of human nature. But now 35 years later, I realize how permanent are the evil impulses and instincts in man and how little we can change these. See, she assumed people would be good to one another because they are essentially good and that's untrue. So at the end of her life, she starts to talk about God in very vague ways. She doesn't want to probably offend any of her supporters in that. But my paraphrase, she really says this, unless there's a God, is there any hope? Is there any hope? She doesn't say that. She's too much of a coward to to say that, but she realizes the problem. How do you get the human heart to change? So there is a desire to live lives of love and sacrifice to be generous because the human heart in its fallen nature is not geared that way. The truth is there is a problem of evil in our hearts. We want to live for the now, not for legacy. Think about all the negotiations going on in the government right now about the debt ceiling. How much are we gonna raise it? How are we going to get there? Because everybody says, you're not cutting my stuff, you cut those other people, you're not cutting mine. And so we just keep raising this debt and raising this debt because nobody wants to say, yeah, I'll take the hit, I'll take the hit. How do we change the human heart? Paul is telling the Galatians why we obey God, the reason why we do the things that we do, what our motivation is. He says, now that you're saved, we follow Christ. Paul doesn't say, now that you're saved, you can commit adultery and lie and cheat. Paul says, you don't commit adultery and lie and cheat. You know, the false teacher said that too. Don't commit adultery and lie and teach. It's not that one said you could and one said you couldn't. They both said don't, but the motivation why was so important because one of them is going to burn you out and one of them is going to lead you in a place that's like, yeah, I'm honoring and loving and serving God because he has first loved me. The reason is everything. So I'm going to give you three points this morning. Um, And I really feel like I'm channeling my inner Tim Keller right now. Tim Keller died last week, if you don't know that, but I love Tim Keller. I've read like every one of his books more than once. I feel like I'm channeling. Anyway, this sounds like a Tim Keller message to me, but whatever. Maybe, Maybe I stole it and I don't even realize. I don't, anyway, okay. Point number one is this. Why the reason why is so important, okay? Why it's so important. Galatians 5, 7, Paul goes on. You were running well who hindered you from obeying the truth. This persuasion is not from him who calls you. So when Paul says the word persuasion, this is like the reason why is so important. He says, we should be obeying the truth. He does not say that if you believe, you don't have to add to what God asks you to do. When we think that God saves us by his grace and we don't need to honor him, that is actually a hindrance to true life. It hinders us from life. Paul asks, who hindered you? That word hindered can also be translated as constrained. And there's a lot to this. I don't want to confuse you, but this is all connected to running this race and where Paul says God sets you free to run that race. Last week we talked about for freedom. Christ has set us free, yet the truth is we have this uncanny way of allowing all these things in our lives to veer us off course from the freedom, to compromise the ability to run. If you're going to run a marathon, I don't know why you would, but if you want to run a marathon or a half marathon or a 5K, you do not want to carry a backpack full of weights if you're running for the best time. All that does is hinder you. 
And what Paul is saying is that's what sin does in our life, this unaddressed sin. It undermines our ability to run the race set before us. It is our hindrance. And so we don't ignore our sin. What we do is we face it. And what Christ has done, we say, yeah, here is this thing, but I'm going to work through it and trust what you have done in the midst of it. Paul says it's not just that that's a hindrance, but other people have stepped onto your track as you're running the race, these false teachers. And those are the ones who are cutting in and hindering you from who God is calling you to be. I don't know if you've uh, seen this movie, it came out a few years ago called Unbroken. There's a book of the same name in it uh, by Lori Hildebrand. And I think the book is much better. But spoiler if you haven't seen the movie, sorry. But at the end of the movie, he gets out of this prisoner of war camp. <gasps> How dare you? Okay, get over it. Uh, in, the, in the book, though, the book, that's like the middle of the book. The book goes on after that. And he has PTSD, he has night terrors. And the book ends after he comes to trust Christ in his life and then goes on to what his ministry begins to look like, and it's really beautiful. But anyway, before World War II, 1938, NCAA championships, Louis Zamperini, the guy the book is about, he's a runner, and he is the guy to beat at these college championships. Coaches from the rival schools, they ordered their runners to sharpen their spikes on their shoes and to slash Louis. So the book says this, halfway through the race, just as Louis was about to move ahead for the lead, several runners shouldered around him, boxing him in. Suddenly the man beside him swerved in and stomped on his foot, impaling Louis's toe with his spike. A moment later, the man ahead began kicking backward, cutting both of Louis's shins. A third man elbowed Louis's chest so hard that he cracked Louis's rib. <gasps> what happened? Did he, did he finish the race? Did he win? You got to read the book and find out. I'm not going to tell you. All right. <laughs> See, it's my job to help you to learn how to read. Okay, so... But this is what Paul is saying. That's what the Judaizers are doing to the people in the church of Galatia. And the Paul realizes the only way they're ever going to break free, that hindrance in their midst, is to get rid of those false teachers. Paul goes to a proverb, Galatians 5, 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. The more you let those false teachers in, the more it leavens who you are. Paul goes to verse 10. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty whoever he is. Paul says, stop listening to those false teachers who hinder and pull you away from the gospel. Point, Paul is pointing out that because they're focused on the wrong thing, the motivation, they are off track. So much so that they think they are being more obedient to God by following the law. But that's actually making them less obedient because they're not living in the gospel. Paul is telling them, and it's important for us, that if you obey God for the wrong reasons, it's almost as bad as if you're disobeying God because it's still disobedience. Why? Because you're obeying rules. You're not living in the love that God has bestowed upon you. Paul doesn't say, who hindered you from obeying the law? He says, who hindered you from obeying the truth? And some of that, I think, is common sense. If you obey a rule, but your heart is filled with pride and fear, those things are the opposite of the fruit of the Spirit, which we'll talk about in, in two weeks. Paul says, if you think you're obeying the law to win or earn God's favor in your life, you are actually disobeying the law. Because guess what? When you trust in Christ, you already have God's favor. You're trying to earn something that has already been freely given by what he has done. And this all goes to the motivation of the why we obey God himself. The reason is so important. Paul goes on then, so what's the second thing here? What is that new motivation then? What is it? Galatians 5.11, but if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. 
Now, this word offense is really important. Paul's going to talk more about that in chapter 6. We'll talk more about it there. But he's saying the gospel, when you really understand it, it starts off kind of offensive. If you have never been offended by what the cross actually says, you may not have fully understood what it means. And this is the difference between Paul's focus on the gospel and the false teachers to understanding our plight and the reason why we live how we live. So the false teachers, they resemble much of our cultural wisdom today. It goes from the outside in. They're very kind of demeaning on your inside. There's a whole lot of fear. I don't want to be canceled, all this kind of stuff. But on the outside, they seem affirming and positive. It's like in our society and the false teachers, on the outside, they say, be good, be noble. Like Again, whatever they define good and noble is, you know, it's, it's over there. But they will say... Uh, Work for world peace. Love one another. You can make the world a better place. Feels like a lot of effort and work, right? But what they're saying is you can do it. You're good enough. You can figure this out. You can work hard enough and you can make that possible. What what does the gospel say on the other side? The gospel says you are so far from being able to live a good life that nothing less than the death of the Son of God on the cross could redeem you. What does that do? That removes our innate goodness. It removes our self-centered pride and it becomes offensive. Again, on the outside, the one says, yeah, you can do it. Work really hard. But on the inside, you're like, I'm never going to be able to do this. I'm never going to measure up. The approach of the gospel is the opposite because the approach of the gospel on the inside by trusting Christ, it becomes very affirmative, very positive. But on the outside, it's very offensive. On the inside, it says, when you trust in Christ, you are brought in. You are a child of God. You have been adopted. That can never be taken away from you. God loves you just like he loves Jesus. God sees righteousness laid over you just like the righteousness of Christ. That can never be removed when we surrender our lives to Christ. But what it also does is tells us that outside behavior, we don't have to run from it. We don't have to be embarrassed by it anymore. We can say, yeah, this is what I've done, but this is now who I am. The law-focused person is all fear-based, but the person who understands the gospel, we have this life and joy that starts from the inside and works its way out, and our lives couldn't help but begin to change. And this is why I go back to what I mentioned earlier. If we truly believed God would never reject us, no matter how we lived, if our sins could not condemn us, how do we then live a God-honoring life? Tim Keller says it like this. If when you lose your fear of rejection by God, you've lost your incentive to live in a holy life, then the only incentive you had for living a holy life was fear. And we are not a people who need to live in fear. We are a people who get to live in hope and life and grace. Paul says, Galatians 5.5, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. That word hope, it literally means a certainty. A certainty. That's what we're looking forward to. That's an absolute conviction. Romans 11 verse 1 says, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. That is not a blind, nebulous belief in something. It's a certainty of trust of trust. We are not merely wishfully thinking that God will make us righteous and keep us righteous. We have a certainty that he will do it through Christ's death and resurrection. A Christian, by trusting in Christ, is absolutely assured and convicted in a way that nobody else in this world could ever be of the beauty that's awaiting us. And that's true now and it starts today. We start at the end. Where are we going to end up? And we work ourselves back from that. That's the hope. That's the motivation. That goes from the inside out. People who don't trust Jesus with their life, they have no idea where they're going to end up. Where are they going to be a billion years from now, except maybe molecules in the universe? What's the legacy? What are you working back from? Nothing in the end matters. And not to sound mean, but 
any other religion, they don't know either. Nobody but a Christian can say through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Christians should be motivated by the knowledge of the righteousness we are going to be enveloped with, which is guaranteed. And that's amazing. Are you motivated yet? You're like, I, you lost me five minutes ago. Great, let's do the podcast. Okay, third thing is this then. How does this motivation work? How does it work? Again, Galatians 5.5. 5, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. We are not motivated to honor God out in the world through fear of our present or our future. We are motivated by hope. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, a couple centuries ago, one of the best preachers America ever produced, talks about how a Christian can't help but to live out lives of good works that honor Jesus because those works are motivated by the love of God in the gospel. This is what he says. No matter how many of our acts of justice, generosity, and devotion, there is nothing given to God if God is not the end or ultimate aim for what is given. Let me explain what he means by that. If we do something with the aim of getting something from someone else, like we help somebody so we want to get help back, or we do this thing so people see us and respect us and we get this kind of reputation, what if we don't get those things we're trying for? Well, it begins to destroy us. The motive is self-focused. The motive is short-sighted and it won't last. But when Christians are affected by the gospel, when we understand what God has done to rescue and save us by free grace, it not only benefits us, but it goes back out of us and begins to benefit the entire world around us. We choose to love others for God's own sake, not for our own. We choose to forgive because God has first forgiven us for God's own sake. We want to delight in Him because He has chosen to delight in us. So Edward's logic kind of goes like this in terms of motivation. The thing every one of us really wants in this world is to be loved and accepted for who we are, right? We, we want that. People, just everything that people do today is geared towards that end. And if we do not have a confident assurance in our relationship with God or going to heaven, if we live a good life, then every good thing we do is not for God, it's for us. What I mean by that is every little old lady you help across the street, if you think God is watching and he's going to be, oh, more pleased with you now because you helped that little old lady across the street or put those groceries in the back of your car, her car, in the back of our minds, we're thinking, I need to do this in order for God to be pleased with me. I need to do this in order for God to take me to heaven. You're not really loving those little old ladies for being little old ladies. You're loving and serving them for yourself. And that is a self-motivated thing. It's selfish. Until we understand the gospel, that we are saved by grace alone, that God can't love you any more than he does that God can't accept you any more than he does because he accepts us in Christ. If you don't understand that, you're always going to be using God and not truly serving God for the joy of who he is in himself. Because sometimes we'll be like, God, I'll do this thing. And if God doesn't give you that thing that you're really working for and you served him, sometimes people will pray, right? And I prayed and I prayed and I don't feel like God responded. Well, the only reason you were praying was to get God's response. You're manipulating him. When we do what we do solely for the love of God, solely because we understand what grace is, that is something completely different. Now, how do we understand if we've really gotten that in our lives? Okay, this is a hard one. It's got to get really deep in you, but you have to ask this question. Is our obedience limited by our motivation? Is our obedience to God limited by our motivation? Meaning that only obedience to God for God is ever unlimited in our lives because our obedience comes from understanding grace. Again, limited means you're trying to do the right things or pray the right prayers. And again, if you feel like God goes silent or God isn't giving you the things that you want, you say, why? 
And that means we are only obeying God, not for the joy of who He is, but because we wanted our prayers answered a certain way. We wanted certain things to be done. And then when life doesn't go the way that we want, where does our joy go? Where does our faith in God go? I have, I have heard people say to me, I'm just done. I've been worshiping and praying and asking God for things, and He's never done it, so I'm done. Well, what was their motivation then? The motivation was themselves. It wasn't truly loving God and understanding grace for what it truly is. I personally think sometimes God goes silent in our lives because He wants us to see and understand what our faith is truly in. Who are we truly serving? I know some people who are very good and very moral, and after coming to Jesus, their life looks exactly the same way that it does before because they're very moral people. And you ask them about it, and they would say, yeah, but now my whole motivation is different. Why I live my life is completely different. I mean, I love it when people are in jail and they get out of jail or on the meth or whatever, and they come in and they love Jesus. And it's, just, it's amazing. It really is. But what about a loving, good, moral person when they come to trust the gospel? I know someone right now, and I almost thought about asking them to do a little interview for me, but I didn't. But you, they would tell you they were wicked before they followed Jesus, and you would think they were the best person you ever met. And you asked them about it, and they said, yeah, but on the inside now, I'm doing everything for a completely different reason. I want to honor Jesus. And that really is that motivation. All through this section, Paul is arguing for that, that the truth of understanding what God has done would fully sink in so everything that we do would be motivated first by God's great love for us, that we would have this persuasion, that this hope would be a certainty, and they would stop listening to the false teachers who are blocking them out from following the gospel. Really, what's our motivation? Our motivation is our hope of the certainty of the gospel. And this is why Paul ends and he starts talking about false teachers. And he says this in verse 8, This persuasion is not from him who calls you. And then verse 12 he says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. This persuasion around work centered on circumcision. And so Paul is like, the agitators want you to cut off your foreskins. And if they're so excited about cutting pieces off, why don't they cut the whole thing off? That doesn't make a whole lot of sense because we don't normally have arguments about circumcision in our culture. But we do at churches today talk about being baptized. And we have had people show up to Element who have said, oh, you need to be baptized to be saved. We don't believe that's true. We believe that we, it's an act of obedience that we get baptized. We follow God. We, we want to be baptized, but it doesn't save us. But Paul would say something like this to people who said that. If it's good to be baptized and that's how you're saved, you may as well keep them under till they drown because then they're really spiritual. That would, that's, that's kind of the same thing that he says. I know, and it seems like a very violent way to end a sermon. I understand that, okay? But what Paul is saying is cutting bits off your body is not what God is after in your life. Sometimes you'll see movies or TV shows and really religious people, they're whipping themselves or whipping each other. That's because they don't understand the gospel. Our sin has been paid for in Christ. You don't whip others. You don't whip you. You trust what Christ has done. Paul is using vivid language to show what the real issues are in our life. Why do we live the way that we do? Why do we say the things that we do? Why do we do what we do? Is it because of grace that's been given to us in the gospel, or are we trying to earn something? Guys, look, we do not earn grace, but we can be a people who live in grace. And so we have to ask, before Paul gets to like next week, which really starts into the very practical, what is our motivation for what we do? Because we get to be a people who live in grace. So what's your motivation for why you do what you do? What's your motivation for being here this morning? What's your motivation? And Maybe why you pray or why you don't pray or read your Bible or don't read your Bible or sing songs or don't sing songs or 
love one another around you when they really frustrate you or just frustrate them back. You know, when you when someone hurts you, when you just want to lash out or you forgive, what's the motivation behind all of that? Because in the end, our motivation is really going to tell us who we are truly serving. And I'm not saying that we don't stumble and fall. I am not saying that sometimes our motivation gets all out of whack and we just respond poorly. I'm not saying if you're a believer, you're going to respond to everything perfectly in your life because you're not. But I will tell you that God's grace does cover us. And he walks with us and calls us back because our righteousness is found in Christ alone and what he has done. And by focusing on the gospel, our lives will change because they couldn't do anything but change because he is so good. And this is one of the reasons every week at Element, we take you to this place of communion because communion is a reminder to reset our hearts and our minds and our focus on what Jesus has done. That our righteousness is not because of ourselves. It's not what we do. It has been laid upon us and given to us. And that changes why we do what we do. Why we say what we say. Why we live the way that we live. It's all centered in the person of Christ. So we invite you to come and break a cracker like Christ's body is broken for us. You dip it in the wine or the grape juice as a reminder of Jesus' blood that was shed for you and me. We don't pass communion around the room. It's a response. We want to think about what God has done and then respond by coming and allowing our lives to be reset in this way. If you need prayer, maybe your whole motivation in your life has been to try and make God love you or you think that it's all about works and you want to pray about that. You want to talk to somebody about that right across the way in the lounge, either after service or during the songs, you can head to the lounge and someone's over there. They'd love to pray with you, answer any questions you have and walk through this with you. Uh, we are a church who is also a, a giving, generous body because God has been so generous to us. We do not pass a plate throughout the room. What we do is it's a response. So there's offering boxes on the side wall. You can give online, but we don't pass a plate because it's all meant to be a response to what God has done. And I'm encouraging you to take those sermon notes, those questions that are in there, talk to your friends, your family, your gospel community, those around you about this week, and maybe start to, to step into that. You know, what, what is our motivation for what we do? Because I can honestly tell you, you know, that in the last couple of days, you know, my wife's my irritation with each other. Sometimes my motivation is about me. I want to be heard. I, I get all this pride in me. And I'm like, hear me, woman. <laughs> and then she laughs at me just like that. <laughs> See, our motivation tells a lot about who we are. And when I'm saying, I'm not saying our motivation never gets off track. All right. But once we understand the gospel, we keep thinking about what Christ has done and it moves us back. It moves us back to understanding his great love first given to us. And that will then in turn change how we begin to live in this world. What is our ultimate end? Hope of righteousness, a certainty of righteousness that has been given. And that then changes how we live every single day. We take that and work ourselves back from that understanding God's great grace. And we live out in lives that honor him in all ways. Let's pray. Father, this morning, <clears throat> we ask that you would Move us to the place where we understand the great grace that we have been given. That we would see the end of where we will be. And that would bring us that certainty of hope. That would work ourselves back even to today. And how we live today would then reflect where we will ultimately be almost like ping pong as it goes back and forth, as our lives constantly be reset upon the good news of the gospel. 
that the words that we speak and the things that we say would be fully reflective of who you are. That you are our God and you have come to save us. Not because of what we have done, not because we have made ourselves worthy, but because you have deemed to love us and rescue us. And I ask that that understanding would then change how we live and we would look beyond ourselves. That we wouldn't make our faith, our trust in you, about simply ourselves, but we look beyond ourselves to say, how can we begin to love and serve others like you have first loved and saved us? And there would then be a change in the relationships around us, in our workspaces, in our school spaces, in our marriages, and in our families, in our friendships, because we are looking forward to what you have done. Not just one day, but today. You have brought us to life. You have bestowed on us the gift of being children of you. And we then, by sheer grace, get to live out of life that is full of hope and grace and forgiveness. So teach us to extend that to those around us as we become your ambassadors to this world, your hands and feet, that we'd be motivated by your great love of us. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen. So drop the curtains and do a couple songs. And maybe during this first song, take a couple moments and kind of ask God, God, what is my motivation? Th think about the best interaction you've had this week and maybe the worst. Maybe the worst one was driving down here with kids in the car <laughs> or whatever. And think about what's the motivation in the midst of your frustration? What's the motivation in the midst of your hope? And see kind of where your heart is being led in these moments. And then ask God to kind of reset you on the reality of what he has done at the cross and what he continues to do day by day as his spirit leads and guides us and reminds us of what our ultimate hope is in. Then have that kind of reset and maybe it could take you into new relationships this week. Maybe it could teach you how to speak differently to one another, how to do acts of service for one another. Again, not, not out of legalism, but sensibly out of this great response to God's great love that has been given to us, that our lives would be lived in response to the gospel.